The Greek philosopher Plato once posed a question that has since become pretty famous called the Euthyphro Dilemma. In Plato's story called Euthyphro, uh, Socrates and Euthyphro are having a conversation, and the question comes up in their conversation about the meaning of the word piety. Uh, they use piety, we might say righteousness, we could also even say holiness perhaps, but basically we're just talking about what is good. What does it mean to talk about goodness? And Euthyphro's answer is that piety is that which the gods, that is the, the Greek pantheon of gods, of course, he's talking about the, the Greek gods, but he says piety is that, that which the gods find to be good, and that impiety is that which the gods do not find to be good. And so this brings about Socrates' famous question. He asks, is something good because the gods love it, or do the gods love it because it is good? Is something good because the gods love it, or do the gods love it because it is good? Now, this dilemma has been very famous since the time of Plato. And while Plato was, of course, thinking about the Greek gods, that question has been brought up by many other philosophers since that time in relation to the God of the Bible. So simply put, right, if we're just kind of thinking about it very basically, the question is this. Is something good because God says it is good? Or does God say it is good because it is good? In other words, really we're asking, what is the source of the goodness of something? What is its source? And here's why that question is important. You know, you might kind of think, eh, it's just one of those dumb things that Greek philosophers ask. But actually, this is an important question for us. Because if something is good because God says it is good, if basically God's declaration that this is good makes it good, then that makes goodness arbitrary, kind of random, right? Since God could have called anything good. For example, God could have even said, if he wanted to, that murder is good, that rape is good, which of course seems not only just absurd, but obviously wrong. That doesn't seem possible. But on the other hand, if God says it is good because it is good, then that means God is submitting to some kind of you know, abstract law that exists outside of himself. Which means basically there's actually something that stands in judgment over God that God had to submit to, which is also a problem, right? So to which is it? What's, what's the answer to the dilemma? We're going to try to answer that question in today's lesson, but that's not really my goal, okay? My goal is not to talk about the Euthyphro dilemma, as interesting as it is, but rather to use that as kind of a, a starting point to talk about the goodness of God. Because that's really the question. What does it mean to talk about God being good? What do we mean when we say God is good? Now, this is a consistent claim in the Bible, okay? The Bible repeatedly talks about God being good. I mean, we saw this in our scripture reading today, but there's many other examples. I mean, you see it all throughout the Psalms, okay? If you read through the Psalms, you see this repeatedly. Uh, for example, Psalm 25 and verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 107 verse 1, uh, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And actually, Jesus himself says it. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. But again, what does that really mean? What, what does it mean to say that God is good? And importantly, what does that mean for us in our relationship with God? And that's really our question today. And I want to consider that question in three parts. Okay, and the three parts are this. God's goodness is foundational. God's goodness is terrifying. And God's goodness in our, is our hope. 
Okay, God's goodness is foundational, God's goodness is terrifying, and God's goodness is our hope. Now, probably two of those, you're kind of like, sure, but that goodness is terrifying probably is a little bit, that's weird, but you'll have to hold on. We'll get to that in a minute here. So first of all, God's goodness is foundational. So let's go back for a moment to Euthyphro's dilemma, okay? And the question again is this, is something good because God says it is good, or does God say it is good because it is good? So does God just kind of randomly, arbitrarily choose what is good? Or is there some abstract reality of goodness and evil to which God has to conform? And the answer is that this is a false dilemma. Okay, this is, this is a false dilemma. A dilemma exists when there's only two choices. But in this case, there's really another choice. And the answer that, that Christian philosophers and theologians have given throughout Christian history is that God's nature, his very being itself, is the foundation of all goodness. God himself is the source of moral goodness. His nature provides the foundation of good and evil and of right and wrong. Now, you know, some people might say, well, isn't that just a kind of convenient answer? You know, that seems like an answer made to just avoid the conclusion. But I don't think that's the case. What evidence do we have that this is true? Well, the biblical understanding of God is not just that he's some super powerful being, but rather that God is the greatest possible being. He is the, we might say, the pinnacle of perfection, you know, if you like alliteration, okay? He is the pinnacle of perfection. If you think of something that is greater than God, well, then that would be God. And that just shows that what you first thought about as God was not God, okay? So God is the being beyond whom no greater being can be conceived. That's just what we're talking about. When we talk about God, every single attribute that would make a being great belongs to God in fullness. So to say that God's perfect nature is the grounding of morality, right? That he grounds good and evil, that he grounds what we think of as right and wrong. That's really just to stay in line with the definition of God. That's just what we're talking about when we talk about about God. But what that means is that God himself is the foundation and grounding of moral goodness, of, of what we, again, talk about as right and wrong and what is good and evil. Now, we all know, if you think about something like love and mercy and justice, we know that these things are objectively good. It, it is just as true that mercy and justice are good as it is to say that two plus two equals four. Right? Those are totally, obviously, completely true. And, and these are necessary realities of the universe. The universe could not have been different. It's not possible to have a universe in which mercy and justice are evil, right? That's just not possible. And these aren't, so they're not social constructs. They're not just things that exist because we have society or byproducts of evolution that were just random. They are realities of the universe. Greed and murder could no more be good than two plus two could equal five. Right? Two plus two cannot equal five, and greed and murder cannot be good. Those are both obviously true. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how does that exist in itself, though? Right? I mean, how could something like greed or, or the, let's say, like justice or, or kindness, how could those things exist in themselves? Or even the concept of two plus two equals four. How does that exist without a mind? How could something like that exist without someone to be thinking about it? We know that things like love have always existed, that love has always been good. 
That even if there was no human being around, that love would still be an objective good. Just like even if there was no human being around, 2 plus 2 would still equal 4. But these things need a mind to exist. And so the only reasonable conclusion is that these have always existed in the mind of God. They are not random, but they're grounded in his nature and his being, which forms their foundation. God is the foundation of moral truths. Okay? So when we say that God is good, we don't mean that God is submitting to some outside standard of goodness perfectly. Nor do we mean just that God does good things. God does good things for sure. But that's not just what we're talking about. To say that God is good is to say that God is the foundation of goodness. In fact, if God does not exist, then objective morality, objective right and wrong does not exist. Now, maybe subjective moral values, subjectively, we could say something is right or wrong, but not objectively, right? Not, not if God doesn't exist. But if those things do exist, if it's true that there really is objectively a right and a wrong, a good and an evil, and I think we all know that that's the case, then their foundation must be the essential nature of God himself. God not only does good, but actually is the, the paradigm of goodness itself. To say that something is good is to say it conforms to God's nature and to the commands that he has given, which are always in accord with that nature. So God is good. Saying that phrase, God is good, doesn't just mean he's done good things for me. He has, and that's included, but that's not all it means. To say God is good means that God is the foundation of goodness. And therefore, evil is that which is devoid of God's goodness, that which is contrary to his will. Okay, so that's kind of the hardest part of today's lesson. That's sort of the, the, the thick part. So now we're going to think a little bit about what that means, though, okay? And I think there's really two temp- temptations at this point. If we understand what we just talked about, I think there's two temptations. The first temptation is to think that this is all just kind of empty philosophy and has no practical impact on our lives. Okay, maybe it's true, but, you know, so what? <laughs> Kind of like math, right? Um, It just sort of runs in the background and it only matters to people who have to deal with it for work. I mean, sometimes we all have to deal with math at some point, but for some of us, some people really like math, but other people are like, the less I have to deal with it, the better. And you can, you can basically get through your life without having to do math constantly. Um, So math is important for like cars and trains and computers, of course. You have to have it if you're going to make those things successfully. But only the people working on those things really have to worry about it. The rest of us can kind of just leave it up to them and, not, and relax. And so a lot of people also think, yeah, maybe it's true that God is the foundation of moral goodness, but that's really an issue for philosophers and theologians. Your average person can kind of just ignore it. The second temptation is to think that this is actually quite comforting, right? After all, if God is good, well, then we don't have to worry about anything. If God is good, then he's, he must just be super nice and we can all kind of relax, you know, about this business of religion and sin. Just, you know, you don't need to worry about that. God's good after all. Okay? But I think both of these are mistaken. Those are mis- mistakes. Now, if morality, right, if good and evil, if right and wrong are just abstract, then really it's just kind of a useful tool for us. An abstract reality, regardless of how true it is, can't judge me, right? Because it's not a person. It's not a concrete object. It can't do anything. It has no direct impact on my life. Now, I may use it to judge something else, but it doesn't really have an opinion about my actions or my behaviors. And it can't do anything even if it did have an opinion. 
But if morality, right, if good and evil, if right and wrong are grounded in the nature of God, then we have a very serious problem on our hands. And here's how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said, if God is the grounding and source of morality, then that means that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. The creator of the universe cares deeply about how we think, about how we behave, and about how we treat other people. And the problem for us is that we all know we don't live up to that standard. We all know that. Now, if that standard is abstract, well, that's not frightening at all because it can't do anything to me, right? It's just kind of this idea and it doesn't really matter. But if that, I mean, I'm not afraid of math, am I? (laughs) I'm not afraid of two plus two equals four doing anything to me. Now, I might be afraid of a person who misuses math, right? If somebody doesn't do the correct math um, and I'm affected by it, that might be bad, but I'm not afraid of math itself. And so in the same way, like I might be afraid of how somebody uses morality, but I'm not afraid of morality itself. And so if it's abstract, it's not really a threat. But if the standard is the personal God who created everything, then we know he must hate a whole lot of what we do. A lot of what we do must really make him unhappy, right? Every lie, Every greedy action, every lustful thought, every angry outburst, every selfish deed, all of these things are things God must hate because they are evil and he is not. And if he's going to be good, he must judge us by that perfect standard. The God who is the foundation of goodness is also the God who must judge us according to his goodness. Now you say, well, why does he have to judge me? Why, why does God have to, why would he have to do that? Well, if God knows that what we're doing is evil and what we're doing is wrong, but he doesn't condemn us, that would not be just, right? I mean, would you think it was good if we just looked at somebody who murdered a bunch of people and said, eh, not my problem, not a big deal, right? No, of course, we would say that's evil. It's evil if you just ignore that kind of a thing. When somebody does evil and you ignore it, that's injustice. It's wrong to ignore if somebody is being abusive to other people. If somebody is mistreating or manipulating other people, that's evil, and we we know that justice is needed. And so if God knows that we're doing evil and doesn't condemn us, that's not justice. In fact, that would be injustice, and then God would not be good. So God's goodness not only shows that we're sinners, but also that we deserve to be judged by God himself, and thus we we deserve to be treated accordingly. So you see, God's goodness is actually, if we really understand God's goodness, it should be terrifying to us. God's goodness shows us his perfection. It shows us his beauty and his glory. But in so doing, it also shows us our imperfection and our ugliness and our shame. The very being that grounds goodness shows us how evil we are and that we deserve justice. We deserve punishment for that. And that's why I think, you know, many people prefer a kind of mindless power behind the universe, right? Kind of like the force in Star Wars. The the force in Star Wars is impersonal, doesn't really have to do anything to me, again, unless it's like in the hands of a Jedi or a Sith, maybe. But the power itself, you know, I don't have to worry about it too much. It's it's impersonal. And it's much more convenient that way. We can use it when, when it's needed. We can ignore it when we want to. But if there is a personal God who is the grounding and source of moral goodness, then standing before him as we are, without forgiveness, is not a joy, but a terror. And we shouldn't expect him to look at us happily and be like, oh, you know, you're so sweet, you're so innocent, you're so good. But rather, we should expect him to condemn us and our behavior. 
to judge us like we deserve based upon his goodness. He is good, and so we should expect good justice. And that means we are in a very dangerous, hopeless state. But you see, this is the wonderful news of the Bible. I mean, you really have to grasp this point to understand the good news of the gospel. Because if you think that there's just this sort of arbitrary thing, you won't really understand it. But if you understand that, if you understand that God's goodness does judge us, that it condemns us, that God's goodness is terribly frightening, then you can understand that God's goodness is also our only hope. As C.S. Lewis put it, God is the supreme terror, the thing we most want to hide from, but he is also our only comfort and the thing we most need. So like we said, God is perfectly good, so he has to be just. He has to judge us fairly according to his perfect standard. And that means that all of us before God are guilty. We have no excuse. We can't make any excuses. We deserve to be condemned. But because God is perfectly good, he is also a God of love and mercy. Now, the Bible is clear that God judges us fairly and righteously, but the Bible is also clear that God does not rejoice in our punishment. That's one of the problems that we have. We assume when we talk about God judging us that he sits there and says, ha ha, I can't wait to lay into you for your sin. Like that's, that's what we kind of imagine and that's why we really don't like it. But that's not who God is. God does judge us righteously. He does. But he doesn't rejoice in that. Right? He doesn't rejoice in our punishment. The same perfection that condemns us is the per- same perfection that loves us. God's perfection condemns us, but it also loves us. So the question then is this, how do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile God's justice and God's love? How can God both be perfectly just and perfectly loving? How is it possible for him to love us, to embrace us, to welcome us into fellowship with him while still making sure justice is fully done for all of our evil? And the answer to this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that precisely because he is good and precisely because he loves us so much, God sent his own son, Jesus, to die in our place on the cross. And what happened on the cross is that God's love and God's justice met in perfect union. Jesus, God himself, took on human flesh and lived a perfect life without any sin who deserved all the rewards of that perfect goodness. But instead of taking that reward, he took our punishment. He took the punishment that our sins deserve. He made sure that justice was done, that judgment upon sin was fully given to him. He took that judgment, he took that penalty, and he did that out of the love of God. And that is the glory of the cross. That in the cross, God's perfect justice and perfect love meet in perfect union. And so you see, when we see the cross, when we see what what happens on the cross, when we see God's judgment being poured onto Jesus on the cross, not just through the physical suffering, but through his separation, through that, that cutting off that he experienced. When we see that, we see the absolute terror of sin. We see the terror of facing God's judgment. But then on the cross, we simultaneously see the abundance of God's love and mercy and grace. Through the cross, or we should say through Jesus on the cross, God's perfect justice and perfect love meet and they open the door to fellowship with him. Through the cross, we no longer have to fear God's punishment because it has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. 
through the cross, Jesus took that punishment that we deserve and gave us his perfect righteousness and its reward in our place. Jesus took our punishment and gave us his reward. Now, of course, God knows we're sinners. It's not like he's surprised by that. But legally, he considers us like Jesus, perfectly righteous, spotless, clean. And in fact, that's not only just his mercy, that is justice. Because Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins, it would actually be unjust for us to receive that punishment if we are in Christ. So God has fully dealt with the justice while also giving us his abundant love. And that is the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this fellowship, that that joy can only be enjoyed if we will embrace Jesus. God has made a way for us to be saved from our evil, but he's not going to force it on us. You see, the gospel is not coercion. The gospel is an invitation. And if we want to stand before God on our own merits, right? If I want to stand before God and defend my own righteousness without Jesus, God says, you're free to try. Go for it. But if we understand the perfect goodness of God, I think we'll understand that is incredibly foolish. Because, you know, that same standard that makes me angry when others do evil, the same standard that creates outrage when I see murder, when I see rape, when I see theft, when I see abuse and all these other things, when I see that and I feel that outrage, the same standard that creates that outrage is the same standard that judges my sin. It's the same standard that says I have done evil. And so if I stand on my own, how can I escape that before God? But through Jesus, God offers a way to not have fear, but confidence. You see, that's the thing. Through Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of God's judgment. We can have confidence before God. We can go before God knowing that we're, we're safe. And how do we do that? The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that perfect love that casts out fear is not our love, but God's perfect love. Because if perfect love is the only thing that casts out fear, guess what? That means that nobody will have anything but fear. Every human would only ever be able to be afraid. Because none of us has a perfect love for God. So the perfect love that casts out fear is not our love, but God's love for us through Jesus. And we can enjoy that perfect love by embracing Christ through faith, submitting to him in baptism, and receiving his perfect goodness, his perfect righteousness that he paid for on the cross. God is good. He is perfectly good in every way, the very standard of moral goodness. And we are not good. We are evil in many ways. But because God is good, he loves us deeply, and he shows that love through the cross of Christ. As uh, Tim Keller would say, on the cross, God's perfect justice and perfect love kissed. And through faith and baptism, we can enjoy this perfect kiss of the perfectly good God and be embraced by him forever. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for the gospel that you made possible. Lord, we know that we are are evil people. We sin so often. If we, if we think through this last week, we can think through so many times that we have done wrong things, that we've said wrong things, thought wrong things, acted wrongly in all kinds of ways. But Lord, we know that you love us and that through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. 
And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for perfectly loving us and for being a perfect God who gives us that perfect love. Well, God, we thank you that on the cross, your justice and your love met and that we are saved through that. Not through our our perfect love, not through our perfect works, but through your perfect love and your perfect works in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with that truth. I pray that that truth is not just some philosophical or theological idea that we recognize is true, but doesn't really change us. Father, I pray that that truth, that your gospel would reach down into our hearts and transform us, that you would transform us into people who show that love to others. That first of all, that we, that that gospel would transform us to be people who love you deeply, who dedicate our lives to you, who constantly are pursuing knowing you and being closer to you and not, not giving in to the distractions of life that, that pull us away. But, but drawing nearer and nearer to you every single day, Father. May that gospel, Father, please in our hearts produce that change that you want. But Father, I pray also that it would produce in us not just a personal change, but a change in how we treat other people and our grace towards others and our forgiveness, our patience, and so on, Father. Help us to be people who, having tasted your grace, give that grace to others in all the ways that you've given, to, uh, given it to us. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being so good and thank you for giving us a means of being reconciled to you through your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.